everyone. Thank you so much for joining the Behind Company Lines podcast. Today, we have Stefan Deeren, co-founder and COO of Vendelux, finding better B2B events faster, search for your clients, track competitors, and maximize event marketing ROI. Stefan, so excited to chat with you, not only because of your background and your experience as a founder, but also the space that is so fascinating. We're all, as, as businesses and as founders, we're all trying to figure out ways to connect and, and make the most out of the time we've spent in those connections. And it's always more exciting to talk about, especially with, with the marketplace founder as myself is, is a founder, utilizing a mar- marketplace kind of model as well, kind of what you do and, and how you go about improving it and, and catering to both sides of it. But before we get into all of that, what were you doing before you started the company? First of all, Julian, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is great. Yeah. So immediately prior to founding Vendelux, I was working at Shutterstock, which is a global yeah. image marketplace running their platform solutions division, actually with my co-founder now here. Yeah. So we were doing partnerships with Google, Facebook, companies like OpenAI in like kind of the AI space before generative AI even became a thing. So really on the cutting edge of technology there. And prior to that, I was at two venture-backed startups in New York City. So kind of see how it was like working for startups, working for a large public company and and now doing my own thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know one of the companies you went through an acquisition. You went through a couple acquisitions at this point. And I always, I'm always curious with founders who go through that transition and how was the acquisition process and, and would you do anything different from, that ex, from those experiences? So uh, both of the venture-backed startups that I worked at prior to Shutterstock were acquired and they were acquired after I was long gone. So I'd like to think I have played a role in that. I think yeah. actually one of the companies was acquired by a company that I had done a partnership with. So I guess I yeah. played a role in that to some degree. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, I, I basically joined both of them right after they were around a million in ARR and helped them scale up to 10 plus million in ARR. So yeah. that kind of like initial scale phase was when I joined and what, what I had experience doing. Kind of had the same experience at kind of a startup within Shutterstock yeah. and the platform solutions team taking it from a few million ARR to much more than that, 10 yeah. x more than that towards the end. So at Vendelux, this is the first time I've ever walked from zero to one and then one to 10 yeah. and beyond, which is actually the hardest, hardest phase of the journey. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think everyone kind of has like their phase of a, of a startup life that they, they focus on. And for me, I really like that kind of initial build. Yes. Getting the, getting the key foundation in place. And then yeah. Yeah, hopefully that results in an exit at some point down here. Yeah. What, what goes into scaling? Obviously, I think most founders kind of know, but when you think setting the foundation, what do you mean by that? Is, are there certain components that startups need to be able to handle, say, scaling not only from zero to one, which you know has its own difficulties, but from one to 10 is a whole different. Once you kind of have that MVP fleshed out, you have your version two, version version three product out in the market, you have customers, but what goes into scaling and, and, and creating the foundation to be able to do so? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, zero for one to one is like, can I get anybody to pay me anything for what we're building here? And somewhere along the journey from zero to one, and I, by one, I can, you could think of it as like 1 million ARR if you're a B2B company. Yeah. Um, you'll have the messing B customers and mid market customers some enterprise customers, a good amount of feedback on what's working, what's not. Hopefully you have a clear sense of where you really have product market fit, but it's a very evangelical sale to some degree, often yeah. founder led or with people that are excited about wearing many hats. So yeah. closing deals and doing customer success and fixing the product and yeah. so forth. To go from one to 10 million, you need to start bringing in specialists. So that's when you start building out your sales program, your demand gen- gener- uh, generation program, your SDR teams, and and having folks that really focus on doing that well to, to be able to yeah. do. 
Yeah. And what goes into, you have experience not only in sales, business development and, and, and marketing as well. And are they different? Are they the same? And, and what goes into choreography of, of getting not only your, your, your customer's attention, but educating them to a point where they, they feel that your product's a necessity? Because there's a lot of drop-off points during that whole process. You're asking them, like, how, how do we measure the life cycle of a, of a customer? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if, if it's not a product that they can't live without, then it's going to be a churn risk at some point, right? So yeah. we really have to narrow in on the best use cases and make sure that the product is delivering. And it's not just a nice to have, but a must have. So and that could be one of the tricky things because you'll have customers that sign up because you're excited about what you're doing and they yeah. want to be a part of that, but maybe it's not the perfect fit. And staying laser focused on the ones where yeah. it was a good fit. It's something that you can build off of and, and replicate and, and grow yeah. from there. Yeah. Descri- describe the uh, the inspiration behind Vandalux and, and what was the initial sure. catalyst to creating a company that's seemingly different from the others, but I'm sure mechanically similar. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's a little bit of context. Like I've always had a lot of success personally going to trade shows, conferences. This is generating new deals, meeting existing clients and partners. You're working on larger deals, six-figure, seven-figure deals. You really need to get FaceTime, and there's no better venue than an event where everyone's there with the purpose of networking, right? Yeah. So when you go to the right conference, it's magic. You get to meet all of your your people in person. What would be the opportunity than that? But I think everyone's been in cases where they get on a plane and dedicate a week of their life to going to a a conference, and you land, and you're like, wait a second, I just made a huge mistake. There's nobody here that's relevant for me to be with. I'm trapped in some random place. What have I done? And the reason why is a lot of these decisions are based on gut instinct and kind of like, hey, we've always done it this way and not really the kind of data and rigor that you would apply to other channels where you can really measure what you're doing in a, in a more like analytical way. So that's what we're trying to help with with Vandalux. We built up the world's best database of B2B events, everything you need to know to figure out where you should be, who you should be meeting with yeah. and much value from events as possible. Yeah. What is that like? Or what have you seen in terms of like post-COVID and the transition? I think a lot of individuals think what we're expecting a remote everything, this whole metaverse push in terms of meeting and conferences, but it, it, it's not the same, right? It, it's not as effective it's, it, as an in-person meeting, even at, as an introduction. Have you seen a shift back into people kind of pushing this whole meeting in person, these conferences and these meetings? What, what's kind of evolved in that whole process as, as people become more, more conscious of the time they're spending? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing, at least as it stands right now, I mean, maybe this will change with better virtual reality headsets in the future, but at least as it stands right now, you can't beat in-person interaction that you're trying to yeah. develop really strong professional relationships with people. Yeah. So not to say that digital doesn't have its place and who knows what the future holds. Like we're, we'll, we'll kind of go where yeah. things have developed. But I, I would argue that it's actually more important than ever because people are working remotely. So they don't have the chances to connect with their customers, even their own colleagues as much as they're used to because people are, are kind of scattered around. So events aren't just a chance to meet with your customers. The also often people are like scheduling their own team or treats around tentpole events to get everybody together during times throughout the year. A lot of the digital channels are inundated now with spam and other things too. So to have that opportunity to meet people in real life and actually take a step back and just talk as a human is, is pretty rare and actually more yeah. valuable than ever before. Yeah. Where do you think people make the mistake or in terms of the, the follow-up and, and, and the continuous it's not necessarily 
most people would would agree the first interaction you don't get to sell or, or you don't it, it doesn't necessarily lead to any result that you, that's tangible but that connection will lead to something where do you think people drop off in the customer life cycle or in the engagement life cycle that they can improve upon is it better knowledge or i'll leave it at that what could they improve upon and, and what do they typically miss like if you like event specifically or um, yeah yeah we all meet up i meet a founder right. we make a great connection but then but then what and, and where where what is the process staying engaged that you've seen success in yeah yeah that's a great question and it's it, it can be tricky to be totally candid because people have put so much energy into a three-day conference that after yeah. the event over they're not exhausted and yeah. now they have to get back into reality and so yeah. sometimes in that critical window of follow-up just people are just frankly are sidetracked with other things so yeah i think part of it is just don't take it personally if somebody doesn't immediately reply to, to you if you yeah. have a legitimate reason to keep the conversation going not just that, hey, following up email, but you, yeah. you had, you talked about something real. Just, just quietly be persistent and eventually yeah. the calendar full clear as they yeah. kind of get back to normal and, and they'll find time for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One other thing you can, I mean, this is one of the reasons why people use our platform is that we're keeping track of who's going to various conferences and where. So there might be another event coming up a month later where you're going to have a chance to continue that conversation as well. Maybe you meet there. Maybe you yeah. want someone out for, coffee or a lunch or, wh or whatever it is to just keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. Always looking for the next chance to, to meet in real life, ideally to, yeah. you know, those well, chips. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's tricky. The whole relationship building process, obviously there's so many different ways to hack it and, and the things you can do to understand your customer a little bit more, but I guess for other founders out there looking to attract their most sought after customer, how do you get engaged with them? And how do you maintain that engagement to, to deliver the value that you're hoping to deliver? Sure. So, I mean, I, I think one of the downsides with these digital platforms is that yeah. it's very easy to do one-to-many blasting, whether you're on social media, bragging about yourself and your company, or, or even in your outreach strategy, sending this kind of generic email to a lot of different people. Yes, there's scale there. And like, that's very attractive for a variety of reasons, but it's not pers as personalized as it should be. So taking the opportunity, taking the chance to personalized and, and just focus on one-to-one -one as much as possible, whether that's a digital channel or in-person meeting at an event or somebody's office or whatever, just investing in the connection that you'd have one-to-one -one with, with another person is, is going to pay off. It may be a little bit of extra yeah. work, but ultimately it's worth it. Yeah. For those who don't know, who are the, the, the main, I guess, who are the main organizations putting on these events and, and are there new organizations that you've seen kind of pushing either newer technology or, or new ways to meet up in person and, and more creative ways is we're all looking for the new and, and best thing or talk about at, at, at coffee shops yeah. or, or what have you. Yeah. Who are the main players kind of putting on these events and are there more kind of coming up underneath that? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we work with conference organizers of all shapes and sizes. So yeah. these are the very large annual trade shows in Vegas down to the new meetups that are, that are popping up. That might be a much smaller group and all of them have their, their place on the customer side. We're working with event marketers and mega large companies like a Google sister game site, and then for the next gen startup. So it kind of depends on who you're trying to reach and, 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 and whatnot, but yeah, some, sometimes a large event is the right opportunity. Sometimes yeah. a smaller event is, is the right one. So your question on like, kind of what's the latest and greatest in the event tech space overall. I mean, we're definitely heavily investing in AI as are many other event tech platforms to, to, to facilitate better matchmaking. So like knowing that you're interested in this and this other person's interested in something similar, kind of like servicing those opportunities in a, 
in a kind of authentic way is, is something that we're investing in. I know some of the other interviewers yeah. in the space are doing the same. So you kind of just take those conversations. Started started already in a place of like kind of mutual understanding and yeah. a good start. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was the incumbent technology before Vendelux? We're the first of the first <laughs> platform we're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, there are people that are trying to research events and figure out who's going to be there using a lot of their own internal resources and just doing a lot of grunt work. Our platform automates all of that. So you can tell us who you're trying to reach, sync in with your CRM. We show you all of the events. The people that you're trying to work with are going to be at. So you can build a perfect calendar and then you're going to an event and know who's going to be there in advance so you can do your outreach. This is something that people can do themselves by like scouring LinkedIn or whatever to see who's posting about being there. But we have a whole AI machine that's going out and gathering all this data as well as first party partnerships with organizers where we're, we are their trusted third party platform to like facilitate this data sharing. So yeah. there's a lot of information that we have that you can't really get anywhere else, but it's yeah. been kind of enabled with just some of these developments in AI and, and, and whatnot that just wasn't possible before. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it's a huge value add to a lot of these conferences because the success of them is the individuals who have successful business outcomes. And without tracking that, I, I remember going to a few conferences and fumbling around with business cards and it's almost impossible to remember who, who to keep back, who could you keep track, who was there, who you talked to, but also what you talked about in, in this whole process, where's the technology at right now and in, in, in terms of its traction and, and how many people are on it? And what are you excited about in terms of this next year? Yeah, so we have a freemium model. So we have thousands and growing quickly free users who are just interested in tracking events yeah. for their own personal professional development. So I have, I live in Los Angeles and I want to know about podcaster events or creator economy events. Like I can sign up and get recommendations for that. And then we have our professional tier where there are event marketing teams, sales teams that are going to hundred plus trade shows a year and need to make sure that those investments pay off. That's on the customer side. We also work with a lot of event organizers who are also trying to reach sales and marketing teams. And, and they, to your point, like they need to make sure that their events are generating ROI. So are they helping all the sponsors get enough meetings and enough visibility to justify the investment. You know, it's not cheap. It's $100,000 and plus in some cases, even yeah. above a million dollars to do a, an event sponsorship. So it needs to pay off many yeah. times over uh, to yeah. continue to year after year. Yeah, th this is something I've struggled with running a two-sided marketplace and connecting to two parties is, is kind of identify what side of the marketplace to invest on it and who essentially needs more, whether it's time, attention, or or, or or investment in features and things like that. How do you essentially weigh the options on on what feature sets to build or, or road mapping for what side of the marketplace and, and really tackle the SUSA? I'm assuming there might be a lot of conferences, but maybe not a lot of people attending them or, or looking to attend them or vice versa. There's a lot of people active on the platform, but maybe not a lot of places for them to go. How do you know what to, mm -hmm. when to invest in, into which part of the marketplace? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, for all marketplace businesses, you kind of have to like weigh which side you, you focus on first. I mean, for us, we we focus mostly on the event marketer side to, to get started. They're the ones that are controlling very large budgets, millions of dollars. And so to help them do that more effectively is, is a big opportunity. But very quickly, the event organizers were, were kind of asking a lot of similar questions. Like the event marketers want to know which events to go to. The event organizers want to know who should be sponsoring their events. So um, e even though they are kind of like one is selling to the other, they both need data to do a better job. Yeah. And there's, there's actually a lot of like overlap in, in the use cases, believe it or not. So 
some event marketers for what it's worth are putting on conferences themselves. So like their annual customer summit might have, might have sponsors and speakers and attendees that they define. So in our, in our world, there's quite a bit of overlap where event marketers can also be event organizers and vice versa. And, and yeah. so well, thankfully a lot of the features we build are relevant for, for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges that Vandalux faces today? I mean. We went through COVID and now we're going into a recession. So I feel like if we can survive those for everything else, it's pretty easy. I mean, yeah. We face the same challenges as, as every other company right now, where there's a lot of economic uncertainty. There's nothing worse than having a great a conversation moving down the, the sales funnel. And then unfortunately there's layoffs at that company. Yeah. And so we're, we have to navigate that as well as all other companies are having to do right now. But again, I, for a, a company in the event space to get through COVID-19 once a hundred year pandemic that had an extreme impact on yeah. all the person. Yeah. The rest of, we'll, we'll get through it just fine. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's incredible to think about the the amount of, I guess, care and attention you probably had to, to, to consider in terms of the operation of the company and, and then keeping things really tight. And I, I guess for other founders out there who are facing these circumstances and, and maybe are, are more externally affected like yourself, just because of the accessibility, it's time, it's cost. How do you maintain your company and, and extend your runway when things seem a little bleak for the short term, obviously long term, like, like, like a, like a stock market, it'll rise and continue to rise progressively over time. But when things are bleak in the short term, how do you kind of stay focused on what's important? And stay, I guess, I don't want to say frugal, but I guess financially irresponsible enough during, during that time. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be, I mean, frugality is definitely a part of it. You try to think twice about it. some of the things you're spending just to make sure your burn stays as low as possible. And then, I mean, like for any, any startup right now, you should assume that the money you've raised, if you've raised any money is the last you ever will. And, and so if you want to pay the bills moving forward, customers. Are yeah. the best yeah. source of funding you could possibly have, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, every business needs to be profitable based on revenue and, and not right. VC dollars. So I think if anything, being an earlier stage firm allows us to just make sure we're focused on that. Yeah. You know, in an easier way than some of these larger companies that got ahead of themselves over raising sure. kind of in the in the boom times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if everything goes though, what's the long term vision? So, I mean, we are trying to help all of humanity build more meaningful professional relationships. So it starts with events and all the opportunities that events for speaking, meeting customers and in, in, in prospects in real life. But, you know, there's other use cases that can expand from there. If people go to events for recruiting, for mentorship opportunities, et cetera. So there, I think things have moved too far in the direction of like very transactional, one-to-many blasting. Yeah. And we're trying to kind of go the other direction. Yeah. Uh, with more meaningful professional relationships, but it can be, it can extend beyond the sales and marketing use cases. If we think yeah. like 10, 15 years down, lo- down the road, um, probably still a big component in real life, but you know, we, we, we'll keep an open mind for things like the metaverse. If, if those, yeah. that turns out to be the new place where everyone's hanging out, as long as a place where humans want for that, that kind of real connection, if that's possible there, then we'll kind of go where, where the tech develops, but it's, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see where we're at in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always like to add, I love this next section because I call it the founder FAQ. So give you, give you some rapid fire questions and we'd love to hear your answers and, and, and assistance to other founders as well. Yeah, what's the hardest part about, yeah, what's, what's the hardest part about your job? Hardest part about my job is, what is the hardest part of my job? I feel like it changes every, every week. I, I think, I think you, you can't get too discouraged when things aren't going well and you can't get 
too ahead of yourself when things are going well. Yeah. So just trying to stay steady and think about what you can do tomorrow and the day after that and not get too bogged down or sidetracked with whatever the days. Um, it is, if you're if you're the founder of a startup, you're going to put in a lot of fires, but you got to keep your eye on the prize. Yeah. Not get too slow, Kevin, but that's the challenge. Yeah. How do you build meaningful connections with other founders or other, I guess your, your stakeholders that you're interested, but obviously, like you said, building meaningful relationships is, is way more advantageous than transactional was. How do you build those meaningful relationships? Yeah, I mean, we, we look for every opportunity we can to meet. Yeah. So we have, we have a, a remote team for and forth here at Vendelot. So we try to bring the team together in New York and at various retreats as much as we can on kind of on a periodic basis. We try to meet our customers as much as possible, whether in New York or where they're based or at events. We go to events and host customer dinners. So we just try to get as much face time as we can, as frequently as we can with all ad folks that we're trying to, to you know, be working with. And lo we're looking at these as like long-term relationships. We might have a customer that, and this is already happening in our, in the, in the short time we've been operational, we've had customers leave one job and go to another, and then they bring Vendelix with them. And they, they're doing that because they trust us to yeah. help them at their next job. And we built a good relationship where they're, they're excited about continuing to work with us. So just kind of playing the long game with, with everybody is, is really important. Yeah. If you're, you were to give a, advice to another founder, how would you go through the process of identifying your price in, in a day, identifying what's going to be the most attractive pricing for your customers? I think a lot of companies that are early stage undercharge for what they're able to do. So I would just, my number one piece of advice would be charge for You got someone to pay 10,000 and the next one asks for 20. If you got them to pay 20,000 then ask them to pay for 40,000. And over time you'll learn where the, the line really is. But I think, I think too often people will just leave money on the table and undersell what they're doing. Yeah. And if you're solving a real problem for companies, they're happy to pay for that. And the more they customers pay you, the more you can reinvest in delivering a better product and service back to them. So like, yeah, it, it's not, in, if, if you're undercharging, then you're going to go out of business and you're not going to deliver any value to the, yeah. the yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so true. A lot of founders talk about hiring and, and their team being so critical to the success of their business. And in every, especially early on from zero to one, your first five to 10 hires is, is extremely paramount for your long-term success. Where do you go to find your talent? Or Tom. Yeah, we, uh, my co-founder and I were fortunate that we've worked with some great people across our careers and we must have done something right because a lot of them wanted to work with us again. So we've had some key lieutenants and and folks we've worked with in the past that have joined us for this part of the journey. And I'm, I'm very grateful that they can trust enough to, to come along for, for the ride because their early stage companies are, are challenging in many ways and they are a lot riskier than some of the other opportunities that they could have, maybe not less, maybe not as exciting or as rewarding, but yeah, that just is kind of a testament to the, the work we've done with them in, in the past. So being able to bring in great people that you've already worked with is, is definitely something that you can, that can be a, a big advantage for, for founders. If you don't have great people to bring in, then yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because you're, it, you just never know how somebody's going to work out until you've actually worked with them. Yeah. So as much as possible to like work with people unofficially beforehand, maybe have to come in as a contractor for like a specific project, even if it's a short term thing and very clearly defined just to get a sense of whether it's a good match, whether it's easy for both sides to work together can significantly de-risk. Yeah. And, and make sure you've got a good team. Yeah. Yeah. For if you were to get funding today, what was, what would be the first thing in, uh, in terms of the organization that you would invest in? Is it, is it talent? 
Is it is it building technology or is it something else completely? Yeah, I mean, I think we would it, it, honestly it's probably both. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're investing quite a bit in our AI capabilities, and yeah. there's a lot more that there are a lot of things that we're very excited about there. So I would I would definitely yeah. put some resources there. What we were already doing this as we as we invest in this space and get great results, we're like, oh, there's so much more we could be doing. So that that'd be one area of focus, and then yeah, continuing to obviously invest in the team. Like we, yeah. we want people that are going to stick with us for. Many, many years. I think that's a mistake that a lot of companies make. They just kind of churn yeah. through people yeah. six months a year and then they're out and they replace them with somebody else. Like, that's not how we operate here. We want people that are locked yeah. in to the for, for the long haul. Yeah. A, a lot of founders make the mistake because it's so costly to to not have someone stay long term. And, and, and not only have they accumulated so much knowledge, but their productivity, if you treat an employee well, and it, it continues to increasingly expand and expand and expand and it's extremely valuable in the long term. If, if what's one thing that you would say your business would need right now? And if you were to, if you were to have a magic wand and make a wish, what would be your wish? That's a good question. What would be my wish if I could do one thing? Oh, I mean, I, this is kind of outside of law. I, I wish that we would get past this moment of economic uncertainty <laughs> uh, more than anything else because it's just such a distraction and kind of a, a time yeah. energy suck and you that's out of anyone's control so we spend a lot of time thinking about things that we can't control it's kind of a waste of our resources and energy right um, i'm excited yeah so if i could wait because uh, otherwise things are going pretty well i mean i just yeah i can focus on what i can do and and, and yeah i wish that i wish that would all go behind us unfortunately it's not an ideal for the people that are losing their jobs right now, that is a painful thing to go through. So yeah, I just, I just hope we get to the bottom of this quickly and we can all move forward. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't working on Vandalux, what would you be working on? I can't even think of what that could be. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course you can, it's such a gotcha well, question. Hell or butt for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love, I love, like, I love that question. It's such a gotcha question, especially for founders. There's oftentimes you don't even think about other possibilities, but I always like to ask it just in case. If uh, failure is not an option. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whether it's early in your career or now, what books or people have influenced you the most? What books or people have influenced me the most? I mean, I, I like live and breathe SaaS, so I, I'm a big fan of like the SaaS community and Jason Munkin yeah. in, in the Google realm at least. Read that quite probably daily. <laughs> yeah. His insights on on structuring teams, kind of trends and seeing in the marketplace, et cetera, and, and like the people that he brings in. So, I mean, we, we go to the Tafter annual conferences and meet a lot of great people there. Yeah. So, in B2B class, a lot of respect for what he's, what he's built. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. All, all the content, all, a, a lot of the, the, the content that's been built around SaaS and, and startups is so illuminating. And I feel like it's very actionable items that you can take on and implement almost, almost it, within the day that you read it, which is super cool to see. I know we're coming to the close, the end of the episode here, and it's been such a pleasure to chat with you, Stefan. I always like to ask my guests, where can we be a part of Vandalux? Give us your plugs, where's your LinkedIn, your websites, where can we be a fan of you as a founder, your Twitters, where can we get involved and engage with Vandalux and, and even be a part of the platform and, and start, start using it? Yeah, everyone's welcome to join for free at vendalux.com. You'll learn about amazing events that are super relevant for you and your company. Yeah. Um, you can also awesome. check me out on, on LinkedIn, Twitter, but we're, we're building a movement at vendalux.com. So that's the place to start. Amazing, Stefan. I hope you enjoyed yourself and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This has been fun.